What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you on Thursday evening, August 3rd, 2023. It was a loss tonight for the Cardinals as Matthew Libertor got his opportunity to rejoin the starting rotation, and it did not get off to a particularly strong start. 5-3, to three, the win for the Twins, a loss for the Cardinals as Libby falls to 1-4 and four on the season with St. Louis. Tonight on B-Shape Daily, We'll talk about Matthew Libertor's start and ask the question, how far does prospect pedigree get you? And in Libby's case, how much will the Cardinals need to see a different version of him at some point down the stretch run of this season before they can give him any real consideration for a 2024 starting rotation that is honestly wide open? Like we know the Cardinals have three spots to fill. It would be very easy for Libertor to rise up and grab one of those spots, but we just have not seen that from him yet. And so does it get to a point with Libertor where you see the prospect pedigree, but then enough of a sample size at the major league level sort of changes what your projections and perspective would be on that player. We'll talk about that tonight as we will discuss Alec Burleson because kind of the other end of that spectrum is a player that I think a lot of Cardinals fans have maybe written off based on his performance throughout the early portion of this season. We're starting to see Alec Burleson come to life. He had another home run tonight. And a very nice day at the office. Is this a guy that the Cardinals would ultimately regret trading away if he's part of the group that is moved out of the roster in the offseason because we know they've got the logjam in the outfield? Is he a guy the Cardinals would regret trading or was the first impressions that I would say many fans had of Alec Burleson the one that ends up being proven correct? We'll talk about the recent hot streak for Burley and what we think of his future tonight on the show. And then we'll dive a little bit into the Cardinals minor league system. As I tell you about a guy that I'm going to start pounding the drum for, I decided, for a call-up. I'm going to pound the drum for his major league promotion, and it's not the guy that you think I'm talking about. I'll say who that is and explain the reasoning behind that. And then we'll talk about the guy that you probably thought I was referring to, Mason Wynn, who had a huge night with AAA Memphis. I want to get into this because I think it's a question that a lot of Cardinals fans have. I was asked multiple times today via direct message or text message, Cardinals fans wondering why Mason Wynn is not here in St. Louis yet. So we'll talk about his big night and that question, and then maybe diagnose a little bit when we can expect the Cardinals to call up Mason Wynn, because I, I don't think it's going to be all too long, all too distant into the future, but it's not necessarily going to be right away. And we'll explain tonight on B-Shape Daily why that is. Make sure you guys are subscribed or following the show on your favorite podcasting app, whether that is Spotify, where you can follow B-Shape Daily, Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe and leave a five-star review, or everybody's favorite, YouTube at youtube.com slash at bshafer12. The channel is called Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. I'm a writer for KMOV and do Cardinals podcasts every single night giving Cardinals fans some good content for their morning commute. You can listen to it over lunchtime, whatever is convenient for you. B-Shape Daily will be there. So hit that subscribe button if you enjoy daily St. Louis Cardinals content. You've come to the right place and like this video while also dropping your comment below on the various topics that we will discuss tonight on this edition of the show. I'm recording this on Thursday night, August 3rd. As I mentioned, the Cardinals lose tonight 5-3. to three. And getting into the content of this evening's show, it was Matthew Libertor on the mound for St. Louis. Did not go the way he hoped it would. Did have a little bit of a rebound there in innings three through five after a rough beginning to this game. But the second inning was really the one that did him in. As Matthew Libertor gives up four runs in that frame, a couple of home runs allowed to Minnesota batters. As tonight for the Twins, they saw Jeffers and Michael A. Taylor going yard in this one. Taylor's a guy that'll sneak up on you with the home runs this season. I believe he is up to 13 bombs on the year. But the Twins kind of did to the Cardinals what the Cardinals did to them last night. Two two two-run home runs in the second inning put the Twins ahead, and they remained there for the rest of the game. But that wasn't good news for Matthew Libertor. The 6.93 ERA that he now carries for the 2023 season at the big league level is a concern, especially for a guy that should be in prime position to show the Cardinals what he can do so that he can lay claim to a spot in that 2024 starting rotation. I think they're going to give Libertor some run down the stretch, but it also could get to a point where if you're toward the end of August and this is the continuation of what we have seen so far from Libertor and it keeps going over the next few starts and they just don't see a lot of progress, 
I don't know if they would go to the point where they say, hey, let's get a look at one of our other younger arms out of the AAA Memphis squad because we just don't have much faith that Libertor is the guy to invest in if we're really taking a serious look at who could emerge for 2024. The Cardinals have got a lot of spots to fill, and I think John Mozeliak would love to let one of these young guys make his job a little easier. If they can find somebody to fill that number five spot, then Mo knows going into the offseason he's got to get a number one and probably a number two. But if they have a reliable number five, maybe Steven Matz is your number four. Miles Michaelis, I think the Cardinals will probably try to sell him more as a number two, but maybe he slots in more appropriately as a number three in a, in a top-line contending rotation. And when you look at where the Cardinals are, that would mean then they need a couple of top-notch starters this offseason. I think my prediction, and I've talked a little bit about this, but I think the drum that uh, the drum beat that I will have this offseason, one of the many, will be the Cardinals are going to sign the most expensive free agent contract they've ever given out to a player who had not previously played for the organization, and that is going to come in the form of a starting pitcher that would be near the front of this rotation. Either your number one or your number two, I think, comes from that. Now, maybe Miles Michaelis pitches on opening day because he's been with the organization longer, and that's kind of the the nod to the homegrown guy, if you will, even though Michaelis is not homegrown. But nevertheless, I think the Cardinals legitimately need to go out and find two pitchers better than Miles Michaelis so that he and Matts are kind of the middle of the rotation, and then you figure out how to handle the back end of it. I maintain that if nobody emerges down the stretch of this season, the Cardinals really need to go out and get another guy, either via trade or free agency. So that would be three outside pitchers. Just bring them in and have that be your rotation along with Michaelis and Matts next year, rather than count on an emergence from Dakota Hudson, an emergence from Libertor, unless one of those guys shows you down the stretch of this season that, hey, if you had a open competition for the number five spot in the rotation, there's at least a guy who is the odds-on favorite going into it in Jupiter, Florida. I think that would be the only circumstance in which I would be comfortable with the Cardinals saying, we're going to let it play out internally for one of those rotation spots, is if somebody grabs the bull by the horns through August and September and tells you, hey, if you do have that internal competition, I'll be the lead horse going into it, and if I'm the guy that's Dakota Hudson or that's Matthew Libertor, and I show you in spring training that I I can back up what I did in August, September, then you just slot me in there and I've earned the spot. But otherwise, at least you have some other options behind those guys if it doesn't pan out. But right now, I don't think the Cardinals have anyone that you would say, all right, if we go in with a five-man competition for one rotation spot at spring training, I've got the guy that I at least am betting on. I've got the guy that I would feel good about leading that competition, as long as he pans out decently in spring training games, he's the one that's going to get the five spot. Because I feel like this past year, Dakota Hudson was kind of that guy, but he was really technically the number six. But the thing you forget about is that every single year in spring training, a starting pitcher is going to get injured. This year, it happened to be Adam Wainwright having the injury take place at the World Baseball Classic. But when those situations arise, that's the reason you have competition deeper than just five guys in spring training. Because when someone goes down, you at least have a feel for who has been performing well and is deserving of slotting into that rotation. Jake Woodford straight up beat out Dakota Hudson this past spring. Hudson did not look impressive in camp. And we talked a lot about Hudson last night where he had a really nice start. He had the strikeout pitch working with the slider. And we talked also about what the things that Dakota Hudson's going to have to do to really get back onto the radar after a season where he has not been on the radar of this organization. He blew it in spring training with with a really kind of rocky outing in terms of his entire couple of months down there in Jupiter. Didn't do any better in Memphis. Eventually, they recalled Dakota Hudson out of basically necessity with all the arms that have either been injured or they knew the trades were coming, and so it made sense to get him up here before that happened. And it just hasn't been a good season for Hudson. If he proves it down the stretch run, maybe you feel good enough about him going in as the lead dog in a competition for the five spot in spring. Maybe Matthew Libertor would also be one of those guys, though. The question for the night when it comes to Libertor, how far does prospect pedigree get you? Or does there come a moment in time where after a couple of cups of coffee in the big leagues, and this one is going to end up being much more voluminous than than what he got in 2022, does there come a point for Libertor where you say he looks hittable, he's been hittable, the numbers say that he's hittable, he has not been uh, consistent enough over the course of his opportunities 
to where the Cardinals can look in, look at him in that vein anymore and say, oh, he is a former top prospect that we expect to emerge as a frontline starter or even a middle-of-the-rotation starter. The numbers aren't good this year. With an ERA in year seven, there would have to be a massive turnaround, I feel, for the Cardinals to look at Libertor and say, going into next year, we feel good about not having to go spend for that number five rotation spot or trade for a bonafide guy to be filling out that rotation. It would be nice for the Cardinals if you could have one of Libertor or Hudson or McGreevy or Graceffo or DrewRom.com that they just picked up in the trade. Uh, I believe he came over in the Baltimore deal, I want to say that one was, for Jack Flaherty. And by the way, we can mention real quick tonight, Flaherty had his debut for the Orioles, and he looked fantastic. Six innings, eight strikeouts. I think he just gave up one run. Faced Paul DeYoung, actually, because it was a game against the Toronto Blue Jays. DeYoung goes 0-2 against Flaherty and strikes out on a ridiculous knuckle curve off the plate. Looked like it was going to be low and away in the strike zone and just falls off the table. I think the book was maybe out on Paul DeYoung and Jack Flaherty purchased a copy because he kind of knows that Paulie's tendency could be to chase some of those pitches. But Flaherty had it working and also velocity-wise had it working. Hit 97 miles per hour on the gun a couple of times. Hadn't done that all year with the Cardinals. I saw a lot of angst on Twitter about, oh my gosh, Jack Flaherty, now he finally cares because he's pitching for a team that is in contention. I think it's always natural to have a guy lock in for a new team in a new environment and just give that little extra oomph, that little extra attention to detail to make sure you are doing everything you can to stand out with your new organization. I don't think it's a lot to read into that Jack Flaherty, like it's not like he wasn't trying, but I think to have a moment where he goes to a new team and can recognize, hey, the team that I came from was losing, and I wasn't always the reason that they were losing, but I also I also wasn't necessarily always the solution to the bad season they were having. And now I'm with a team that's really in the middle of a, of a pennant chase, essentially, and can I be part of the reason that they reach their goals, and can I lock it in for this new team? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's good for Jack Flaherty to see him potentially have a chance to be their number one starter. I mean, you look at the rotation for the Orioles, it's not like it's super robust. They've got a couple of guys with ERAs in the threes, but nobody that's a bona fide ace. Like if I were to give you their names, you'd go, oh, okay, yeah, that guy's just a guy. Jack Flaherty has a chance to be much more than just a guy, and I think there's a world in which he's a game one starter when the Orioles get to the playoffs. So I think good for Jack Flaherty. That's my reaction. If you have a negative reaction, I would say life is too short. Jack Flaherty gave what he could for the St. Louis Cardinals for several years. Uh, it didn't end up, I think, working out to the hopes that everybody would have had for his St. Louis career, but I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to go, oh, you know, rip the guy on the way out and say, well, now he cares with Baltimore. Although I would say this, like, is it surprising to anybody with the way this Cardinal season has gone that that's the result that Jack gets into a new environment and he starts absolutely shoving eight strikeouts over six innings, allows just one run. He looked good. The Baltimore Orioles got the win. I think he's going to continue to look really good for them down the stretch. But the point that I was making before getting sidetracked and wanting to make sure I touched on the Flaherty stuff from earlier today, Drew Rahm, one of the guys that came over in that deal, I throw him into that mix along with Hudson, with Libertor, with McGreevy, with Graceffo. Maybe there's somebody else that emerges as an option that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. But though, you know, Zach Thompson, if they decide to go that route again with him being a starter, who knows? Maybe Ryan Helsley's back with the organization and they say, we're transitioning him. We're going to stretch him out to be a starter. Whatever it would be, there's a bucket of like six or eight guys that I just don't think you can, as the St. Louis Cardinals say, open competition between all of them for the five spot. May the best man win. I think it almost has to be open competition for the number six spot. May the best man win because the number six spot, in all honesty, probably ends up as the guy taking your number five spot to begin the season because somebody's getting hurt. You know what happens every year. It took till the very bitter end for it to happen this past spring when it was Adam Wainwright coming up lame after a, a workout injury amid the World Baseball Classic, but it happens every single time to this Cardinals team. So if the Cardinals are going to say, we know the starting pitching needs to be fixed, and that's how we get better for 2024, and we realize that has to come largely through free agency, maybe there is a really savvy trade that happens that brings in a, a bona fide mid-rotation or better type guy. That's why we're going to talk uh, about Alec Burleson tonight and whether that's maybe an area where he could fit into the offseason plans because we know it's going to take somebody that you don't want to see traded away. Otherwise, it's not that the Cardinals would be giving up any value, and therefore, why would the other team send you a pitcher who has value in return? 
So trading is an avenue to fix one of those rotation spots, but I think the others have to come from free agency. But like I was saying, if the Cardinals are going to say we're going to improve that element of our team, I don't think it's realistic to only add two guys from outside the organization and then have it be a battle for that last rotation spot on paper because you just got to know that injuries are going to happen again. They happened this year and not really to a large extent. Like I know John Mozeliak has spoken a lot about when asked, hey, why did this year go wrong? The injuries. He is quick to bring them up. I think in the outfield, he always mentions how Lars Newpar and Tyler O'Neill have essentially combined to miss a full season. The relief core has had some injuries hit them. Obviously, the Ryan Helsley one is the biggest one, and he is working his way back right now for St. Louis. Would be a boost to get him back. But in the rotation, it's really just been Adam Wainwright that's been hurt. And then when he came back, he wasn't effective. So that's like nuking an entire rotation spot for basically to this point in the season. Maybe he has a good finish to 2023, but so far it has been really rough. And when you realize that Wainwright goes down, guys like Woodford and Libertor who have filled in for that fifth spot have not panned out this year. Yeah, it really is like nuking a rotation spot. So unless you want to volunteer to nuke a rotation spot again next year, you have five Bonafide's daughters so that if by some chance you end up with the depth pieces panning out better next year, I do think that has to be part of the equation. The guys who filled in and contributed for the fill-in rotation spots have really performed poorly. So you have to hope that the depth gets better with anybody that may contribute in that role next year when starters do go down. But with McGreevy and Graceffo being a little closer, they might be options with Dakota Hudson maybe panning out a little better. He might be a more formidable option. I don't know what you might think Libertor would would fit into that mix as of right now as. Um, And then you add a guy like Drew Rahm and maybe Klopfenstein came over from the Blue Jays, Sam Roberts. Maybe some of those guys who are double A slash triple A types end up taking that leap to where by some point in 2024, you just feel a lot better about the options that you have when you are desperate for a guy to start on short notice. And you're like, whose turn is it in Memphis? I think the idea behind a lot of the trades the Cardinals made at this deadline would be that you're feeling a lot better about the answer to that question and might be able to get by with a little bit more capable performance from your depth pieces. But to think that you can just be one call away from needing one of those guys on a regular basis, I think that's already scary as it is. It'd be even scarier to count on one of those guys being your number five starter. Unless you see a meteoric rise from somebody the next two months to where it's an eight-man race for that spot in Jupiter and one of those guys has a better than 50% chance of claiming the spot, like you already have to feel good about one of them going in and saying, okay, let's see if he checks the box and earns the spot or if somebody else has to outdo him in case he has a bad spring or whatever the case might be. That's the only circumstance in which I think it's reasonable to go in without that five spot filled by outside the organization. And the reason I talk so much about that is because I don't know if Libertor is going to be that guy that can enter spring training in mid-February and you say, we feel pretty good about where he's at based on what he showed us down the stretch. Now he's just got to mind his P's and Q's and he'll earn that five spot. I don't think a lot of Cardinals fans feel Dakota Hudson fits that billing either. Despite what he did last night, he'd have to do that uh, six or eight more times the rest of the year and maybe not give up the late home run to, to make people really feel good about it but the strikeouts have to be up, the walks have to be down, or it just doesn't matter what Dakota's ERA is. Like, he could have a 2.8 ERA the rest of the way, but are the underlying stats going to be such that you think it's going to be replicatable into the future? If we don't see those kinds of steps forward by anybody with the Cardinals at the Major League level, got to go out and get three pitchers. I think it ends up being sign an ace or somebody that you hope can be your ace. At least you're paying him $100 million or more and hopefully that money ends up being worthwhile. You trade for somebody else that's a mid to maybe a number two spot in the rotation, and then you sign somebody, I say on the cheap, but that could mean a one-year, eight, nine, ten million dollar deal from somebody that's looking for a pillow contract, and maybe you have reason to believe that that guy could slide into the five spot, and if he ends up being a complete bust in spring, that's when you start digging into your depth. Let me know what you think about this as we look at the Cardinals rotation for 2024. Drop your comments below in the YouTube comment section as you like and subscribe to this video for daily Cardinals content all year long. That's just where I am, though, when it comes to the Cardinals rotation. 
Liberty, I mean, his ERA is seven, guys. It's just a touch below seven so far this year at the big league level. I know that he was much more effective in Memphis, but there does come a point for Matthew Libertor where I think he's just got to do it or you have to kind of throw that prospect pedigree out the window eventually, right? You can't go into next year saying, well, he may have had a seven ERA last year for us, but he was once a top 100 prospect and we feel really good about that. I can respect that Matthew Libertor gave up the, the two bombs in the second and then in the third, fourth, and fifth innings, looked really solid, didn't give much up at all, and then got into some trouble in the sixth inning where the bullpen ultimately coughed up that run for him. I believe that it was Verhagen coming in and issuing a walk to the first man that he faced. Uh, Druver ultimately uh, looked fine after that, though. Three strikeouts of the four that he recorded tonight. But for Libertor, it's a matter of having those three innings that were strong be what you do the whole way. Six hits given up. Obviously, the two bombs kill you. A couple walks isn't what you want but it wasn't terrible when he goes five and two-thirds innings. But just one strikeout, you got to find a way as Matthew Libertor with a guy that can throw mid to even upper 90s, 96, 97, when he's really cruising along. you got to find a way to miss more bats to set that fastball up and allow it to lead into the breaking stuff that uh, can be really strong. Libertor's got a nice curveball, but he's got to be able to, I think, establish the fastball first and can then really allow the curve to work off of that to his benefit. But we saw Libertor sitting mostly 92 through 93, maybe a little bit of 94 mixed in there early rather than get a little more oomph on that fastball. I think when he's around that 95 mark is when you're really feeling good about it. And we've seen that from him at times, but maybe not so consistently. I know it could be a lot to ask a guy to say, hey, you have to throw as hard as you do at your best, but also command your fastball on a night where maybe the command is a little bit wanting for you. But it's just, it's the big leagues. And at a certain point, I think the Cardinals are going to need Matthew Libertor to be that consistent force. And we haven't gotten to that point yet with him. I think he'll get some more shots, but eventually I would start to stump for saying, what does it look like from somebody else like Graceffo or McGreevy? Although Graceffo did give up like five runs and three innings tonight for Memphis. So he's not having a super great year down there either. I think he's around 4.75 now for the ERA. But also, it can be hard to pitch in that league, just that the AAA leagues tend to have a lot of offensive production for whatever reason. And so I'm not counting out Gordon Graceffo, but it has been that case a little bit where we just don't see the guys at the Memphis level really begging for that call-up based on their performance. So we'll see what it looks like for Libertor moving forward, whether he gets more starts. I think he'll get another one. I mean, he did pitch into the sixth, and getting through innings is kind of part of the game at this point for the Cardinals as they work their way through the rest of this season. But I want to touch on Alec Burleson tonight, who went three for four with a couple of runs scored and had another home run for the Redbirds. Elsewhere in that Cardinals offense, not a lot to speak of. Dylan Carlson went one for four with a double and had a couple of RBIs. Uh, Jose Fermin had a two for three day, which is good for him. Before tonight, I think his only hit that he had had at the major league level was a bunt hit. Kisner, Edmund both mixing in with a base knock, but otherwise not a great night for the team. Uh, We saw Newpart. Goldschmidt Walker was the alignment one through three, and that combined four and 0 for 12 with six Ks. So not exactly what you want to see from the top of your order, but Burleson in the cleanup spot certainly did clean up. He's got a 723 OPS now for the season that Alec Burleson has increased his numbers to. And when you look at his recent numbers, he's been really solid. Last 15 games, this is a sample size of 36 at-bats. He's hitting 333 with a 351 on base. And a 6'11 slug, which is really interesting because he's not a guy that you project to have a ton of power. I think ultimately he can be that kind of 15 to 18 to 20, maybe in the low 20s in terms of home run total if he were an everyday starter at the big league. But maybe I'm wrong about that. And his power is something that he can grow into. What we've talked about, his name is Burley. So you'd figure he's a guy that hits a bunch of bombs. Really, he's more of a contact-oriented hitter, a guy that just does not strike out all that much, which is really nice to see. I mean, you in the modern era of Major League Baseball, would like to see a guy that can have that kind of bat control and plate discipline. So it's a a feather in his cap that he can do those things. But power-wise, the fact that he's slugging over 600 over his past 15 games and over the past seven, a lot of that production has come. He's obviously homered in each of his last two games, which makes for a 933 slugging percentage over his last week. But even you could go back to the last 30-game sample size and he's slugging 526 with a 337 on base and a 295 average. So over the last month plus, you're talking about Alec Burleson with an OPS near, what's the numbers on that, 860 for Alec Burleson, 863 over the past 30 games. So he's been a guy that's been producing offensively, 
The problem with him is the defense, uh, even with a DH to kind of play around with, you don't really have a spot that you feel great about him in. He's not been a great defensive outfielder, um, probably below average about no matter where you put him. He can play some first base for the Cardinals defensively, but obviously that's going to be a rarity tonight. You had Goldie as the DH, and so it worked out to have Burleson play first. That is his natural position. It's just tricky to be a backup first baseman on the St. Louis Cardinals because you're not going to see a lot of time there when Paul Goldschmidt is on this roster, and Goldie's numbers are down. I get that. The OPS is down to 817 for him. He's still hitting 275, but uh, yeah, it's it's down from where we saw Paul Goldschmidt in past years. I'm not saying it's time to worry about him, but you do notice some of the things like the fastballs around 94 miles per hour. He's had rough numbers on those. I saw a graphic earlier today of somebody posting that, yeah, those, those kind of mid-90s fastballs, Goldschmidt has swung through a lot of those, and the, the numbers aren't that good. And I think below 200 on them, and not a lot of power or on-base ability when it comes to those pitches. And I, I don't know if that's something that you have concern about. I think there have been times in Goldschmidt's past, even last year, where we saw stretches like that, and then he was able to pull out of them for the most part. Um, I do know he finished the season a little bit slow, and so maybe you wonder, is that something continuing over? But he's had great moments this year as well, and for a guy that we're talking about as a struggling player, he's still got an 817 OPS, which is one of the highest marks on the team. So I feel like Paul Goldschmidt is still a guy that I want to see the Cardinals continue to build around. I don't know if you go as far as to extend him this February. I think that could be a little bit dangerous, all of the Matt Carpenter contract when they gave him an early extension a year before they had to. With Goldschmidt, I don't know how comfortable he would be, though, to play out the year. And then maybe if 2024 doesn't go his way, he leaves potential money on the table by not forcing the issue on an extension. I don't know what his preferences would be. My stance is still the Cardinals should not trade him because I think he's one of their best players. Even getting into age 36, I still have expectations for Goldschmidt to play at a really high level. I just think he's a guy that is going to age gracefully, despite what we're seeing with a little bit of a slump right now from Goldie. But the reason I bring up Goldie is because a guy like Alec Burleson, it's awfully hard to kind of wedge your way into daily playing time when they've already got a glut in the outfield and you haven't been super adept with the glove defensively as an outfielder. And the reason for that is because you're a first baseman. It's the same thing that we've seen Jordan Walker run into where he's got to be an outfielder every day because they are even higher on his bat than they are on Burleson's and they want Walker to play out in, in the lineup every single day. And that usually is going to end up being in the outfield where that happens. I think it would maybe be too much to say, Hey, Jordan Walker, there's a day off for Nolan Arenado. Why don't you play third base? I don't think that's the route the Cardinals are looking to go with Walker. They're trying to simplify it and have him learn the outfield. So that's where he's probably going to continue to be. And that contributes to something that makes it difficult for a guy like Burleson, even when they would like to see him in there against right-handed pitching very often. And it starts to look like, I think they're going to find a way to do that one way or another as often as they can, especially while he's going like this, maybe ways to keep him in the lineup. It, it gets very difficult for Ollie Marmel. And you talk about a guy like Dylan Carlson, who has just not had a lot of opportunity. Good to see him have a solid night at the plate tonight. But that's the reason he's not going to end up with a lot of opportunity because they're looking at some of these other guys where there's upside offensively for a Jordan Walker. Obviously, for Lars Newbar, they want him in there every day. Tyler O'Neill, they're still exploring what that looks like and, and what he could potentially bring to the team. And O'Neill wasn't even in the lineup tonight. So they're still doing their part to try and get every little different guy in the mix. But man, Alec Burleson's an interesting one. With an OPS up to 723, he's hitting 249. He profiles more as a guy that I think will have a decent batting average, like 270 range, and takes his walks to where you can expect maybe 330, 340 if you're really stretching it for the on-base percentage. And if he starts to develop this power stroke the way that he's doing recently, he's up to eight home runs. I wonder what the slugging percentage could look like for Alec Burleson on a regular basis at the big league level. Right now, he's slugging just 425 for the season, a 398 slug for his career. He just didn't do a whole lot last year with the opportunities the Cardinals gave him. But if he's slugging 425, maybe I overshot him as far as the on base of, of being like 330, 340. He's at 298 now. But I just think he's going to be more than a 249 average hitter, which is where he's at. So add 20 to that, put it on the on base. Maybe he's a 320 on base, but like a 440, 450 kind of slug, I think is not crazy to think he would be. If that's the case, you're talking about an OPS in that 770 to 780 range. Right now he's at 723, but he's a, a player who's just 24 years old, still growing, still getting 
kind of acclimated at the big league level, left-handed bat that could potentially have some pop in it as well and just doesn't strike out very often. On the season, Alec Burleson has K'd just 27 times. He's an interesting player. He's a guy that I overlooked early on. I was kind of wondering why the Cardinals were force-feeding him the way that they were into the lineup, especially with the glut of outfielders that they had, the logjam out there. But I think I can start to see the light on what he brings to the table offensively. And I'm getting to the point where, too, I don't know if it would make a lot of sense to trade him. Uh, It does get difficult, though, because how do you continue to allow him to develop into the player that he can be when you have basically guys blocking him at every position that he could conceivably play? It's going to be a very interesting next couple of months to see how how much playing time does Burleson get. And then when you get into the offseason, how do the Cardinals decide upon who they're going to back with their playing time opportunities that they have to offer up? And who do they decide is worth more to the team in a trade than in the daily lineup? Because you're looking at guys like O'Neill. Obviously, Carlson is in that mix to potentially be moved. Burleson is a guy that I think other teams have interest in. He was rumored to be somebody teams were asking about at the trade deadline, and the Cardinals held serve. They did not budge on Alec Burleson. I think if you can get a pitcher legitimately for Burleson, that's maybe where the Cardinals would be on the asking price to say, hey, if this guy that you want to offer up to us can go in our rotation— You can have Alec Burleson, but anything less than that, we're going to continue to let this thread play out because we think he's a player. But let me know in the comments below, where are you on Alec Burleson and does the last couple of days change your mindset at all about this player who could end up maybe heating up a little and showing a different side of his game offensively, uh, allowing the Cardinals' opinion of him, which has clearly been high internally, to be proven correct if he continues to perform the way that he has. But let me know in the comments section your thoughts on that. As we kind of shift here into some minor league talk, the Memphis Redbirds got a win tonight at AAA, 17-6 over the Jumbo Shrimp. That's really the name of the Jacksonville team, the Jumbo Shrimp. 17-6, the winners were the Memphis Redbirds. I want to start pounding the drum for a Memphis Redbirds position player to get a call up to the major leagues. And I'm not talking about Mason Wynn. We'll make sure we get to him before the night is out. I've teased it long enough, and I am going to explain the Mason Wynn situation. But I'm talking about Nick Dunn, who is listed as a second baseman for the Memphis Redbirds. I know that Mason Wynn had a big night tonight, but Nick Dunn did as well, going three for four, scoring a couple of runs, and driving one in on a really solid three for four evening that increases his batting average with the Memphis Redbirds to 388 on the season with a 9.95 OPS at AAA. Now, granted, this is a small sample. He's only played about a dozen games there at AAA. I think tonight was his 13th game. But he had really strong numbers at AA as well with a larger sample size, 265 at-bats with the Springfield Cardinals this year, a batting line of 332, 420 on the on-base percentage, and a 483 slug. So not a huge home run guy, just seven home runs and 15 doubles with a couple of triples mixed in this season at AA. Got the promotion, and the numbers are continuing to be strong. He's got an OPS near 1,000 since joining the Redbirds, and for the season across the two levels, the OPS is well above 900 at this point for Nick Dunn. I'm kind of wondering if the Cardinals are going to get into a spot where it's all about looking toward next year and what could potentially happen what you want to see from maybe guys that would be on your bench. What do the utility players look like? Why wouldn't you explore every potential avenue and bring up a guy like Nick Dunn, who's listed as a second baseman? I don't think he is a particularly strong defender, and he's not a guy that really figures in as a utility player either. He's only really played second base the last couple of years in the minor leagues, has played a couple games at third, and I think filled in at one game for a few innings last year in Springfield at shortstop. Just has not really gone anywhere else. Probably a very limited defender. But the bat is very interesting. A left-handed swinging infielder, undersized guy at 5'8", 185, and not the strongest glove on him. And is also not particularly young. At 26 years old, turns 27 in January. So that's the downside that I'll bring when it comes to Nick Dunn. I'll be right out front about what they are. When it comes to people talking about prospect pedigree, the guy's not a prospect. You're not going to talk about a guy 26 and a half years old, can only play second base and doesn't really do a particularly great job there defensively as a prospect, which by the way is kind of the same book on Luke and Baker, although his numbers have been even stronger for a longer period of time at AAA. His OPS is like 1100 
but he doesn't play a position other than first base. And the Cardinals, you know, we talked about Alec Burleson and yet Paul Goldsmith. That's what is up against Luke and Baker, who's also like 26 going on 27. So those are the issues with him. But for Nick Dunn, I think it's interesting because he's a guy with a 990 OPS so far at Memphis and has a OPS over 900 for the season overall. It feels like for where the Cardinals are, those are the kinds of guys that you should get a look at down the stretch run of this season. And he's really a guy that's come on strong offensively. Like back in the day, 2019, he had a 629 OPS at high A. Double A had a 698 OPS in 2021. Has gotten better and better the last couple of years. I think that's something worth exploring potentially for the Cardinals. I understand that part of the reason it probably won't end up happening is you can look at the Major League roster right now and guys like Fermin and Motter, they're comfortable putting those guys at different positions. Motter can play first, uh, third base, pardon me, like he did tonight. Fermin could theoretically play shortstop and, and probably third as well. But you're looking at the numbers for those two guys. Even after Fermin with a two for three night today, he's 214 and 481 on batting average and OPS for the season. Taylor Motter with the Cardinals is hitting 174 with a 457 OPS. I feel like they've got enough as long as they have one of those guys, Motter or Fermin. The other guy can be a Nick Dunn type who, yes, he can only really play second base. But as long as the other guy that you pick between Fermin and Motter ends up being able to play short, third, and second, I think you're covered there. And the only reason that we're seeing both of those guys in the lineup tonight is because something happened with Nolan Gorman fouling a ball off his foot. And so he's day-to-day again, not because of the back, but now because of a different injury. And they're hopeful that he'll be back in the lineup by Friday. But I'm just looking at that and going, all right, these guys aren't part of your future. Fermin and Motter, they're just not. There's no excuse for either of them to be on the team next year because they bring just virtually nothing offensively with sub-500 OPSs. You might as well see what a guy like Nick Dunn could do when his OPS is basically double that at the minor league level this season. So that's the drum beat that I'm putting out there. Let me know what you think of it. Is it worth it for the Cardinals to consider a guy like Nick Dunn, who is absolutely not on the prospect radar? But if the Cardinals want to go back to kind of the Memphis Mafia days where they were very out front about wanting to reward elite performance at the minor league levels and say, if you performed, you got that call up. What happened to those days? Because I feel like that's really been something that we haven't heard in a number of years. The Cardinals have not prioritized a guy like Luke and Baker's performance at AAA with opportunity in the major league level. And I get why, because of his lack of positional flexibility. But Nick Dunn's another example where I'm like, you know, I think there might come a point where a September call up or something for Nick Dunn would make a lot of sense. Probably a very minor sort of move to make, but maybe you find out that this guy can actually hack it at the big league level. Maybe he builds himself into a little bit of trade value where another team goes, yeah, we would take a left-handed hitting second baseman that can handle his bat. Maybe he hits 300 at the big league level. Like, I don't know what's realistic for a guy like Nick Dunn. Probably makes sense to have expectations low, given that he wasn't a very good offensive player for the majority of his minor league career. And it's not until the last couple of years that he's really come onto the radar with the bat, but I think those are the kinds of things that you want to promote within your organization. Guys who are making themselves into something after really being kind of written off previously. I like Dick Dunn. I want to see maybe an opportunity for him at some point down the stretch of this season. I want to say nobody claimed him in the Rule 5 last year, and that was somebody that that could have been claimed based on his status as a a five-year minor leaguer. So I would like to see the Cardinals just give him an opportunity because for me... Modder, they're not going to be around next year, and and they probably shouldn't be if you're serious about fielding a team that's competitive 1 through 26 on your roster. So let me know what you think about the possibility of a little Nick Dunn action for the Cardinals down the stretch. Would you like to see him over some of the utility types of infielders who, yeah, they can play more positions than Dunn, but how many utility guys do you need when you're filling this everyday lineup? It's a second baseman most of the time when Gorman is on the mend. Would you maybe like to see somebody who's performed at the minor league levels to have that shot at it when he's probably not part of the Cardinals' future either? But it'd be nice to kind of see what that looks like, I think. So take a look at his numbers and let me know what you think about the Nick Dunn stance that I am now holding here on B-Shape Daily. Smash that subscribe button as we get into the conversation about Mason Wynn, which I know is what we're labeling this video after, and so a lot of you are probably maybe skipping right to this part. I do recommend taking a look and a listen at the starting rotation conversation that begins around the four-minute mark and then the stuff on Burleson and our mystery guest that we just discussed as it pertains to a potential call-up 
I did put these timestamps in there, though, because I felt a little bit bad about waiting until the end to talk about the thing that we labeled the video after. So I labeled it that way so you can find it on YouTube. But make sure you guys are checking out the other stuff. We're talking a lot of cool Cardinal stuff here as we get into the nitty-gritty on this show and on this podcast and on this channel. So please do hit that subscribe button as we get into Mason Wynn now. Yeah, he was on his game again Thursday night, a four-for-five day for the Memphis Redbirds as they won 17-6. to He was a triple short of the cycle, ultimately had a home run for his 17th of the year, had three RBIs, scored four runs, and also reached base via walk. So he was on base five times. Mason wins up to a 285 batting average and an 828 OPS at AAA. Those are numbers that if you project out what maybe a, a bit of a diminishing return on his numbers would be at the major league level, I still think you could come up with a very capable shortstop in Mason Wynn. I think he could step into the big leagues right now and OPS at least 700. I don't know how much above that I would be comfortable predicting, but the fact that he's able to mix some power into his game this year the way that he has, I think is definitely encouraging toward that end. You look last season, he hit a total of 12 home runs between low A and double A. That's a different beast than what we're seeing right now from Mason Wynn walloping 17 home runs in just under 475 plate appearances at the minor league levels. But this has all been at AAA. So I think that's really encouraging as well. And you're just seeing such a steady batting line in terms of the way things progress. A 285 average is great, but your on base is like 360 and your slug is pushing 475. I don't have the updated numbers on that in front of me. Um, but I do know the OPS is 828. So the numbers across the board have been really strong for Mason Wynn. And even the strikeouts, not terribly concerning. It's just 76 strikeouts and about 468 plate appearances this season. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, not as many stolen bases, I think, as I would have expected when he stole 43 bags last year. Has not maybe been as fleet of foot this season with just 16 stolen bases. But he is also 16 for 18 in stolen base attempts. So at least when he does go, he is picking his spots and been largely very successful in that endeavor. But Mason Wynn, what do we think about Mason Wynn? Well, we really like him. We think he is a major league ready defensive shortstop, and we're very impressed by the numbers offensively. The strides that he has made in the game offensively, I think have been considerable and have placed him on a new echelon in terms of what you might be able to hope for at the major league level. Like, he's a guy that could end up in that 10 to 20 home run range. I don't think it's crazy to think that he would. He's added power to his game, has a a career high in home runs this year, already five more than he did in 2022. And once again, that was at much lower levels. So impressive to see that step forward in his game. Kind of interesting that he hasn't hit all too many doubles this year. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that. Again, that kind of goes, goes along with the... The, the speed element where maybe he has not been as fleet of foot, but he does have six triples. So I, I just think it's maybe just coincidental that a lot of those singles aren't turning into doubles, just 14 doubles compared to 36 last year. But I, I think it's probably not anything to really be concerned about the numbers across the board. Very encouraging for Mason Wynn. We like him. That's the bottom line. However, what's the situation and why is he not in St. Louis yet is a question that I think rightfully so a lot of Cardinals fans are asking and wondering about for the 21-year-old shortstop. Again, this guy's just 21, only a couple months older than Jordan Walker, turned 21 in March, and Walker did so in May. Mason Wynn is going to be a really good player, I believe, for the St. Louis Cardinals. But right now, I do think I agree with the Cardinals' stance on waiting at least a couple more weeks. When you get into the, like, the, the August 20 range with Mason Wynn and he's still not up, That's when we might start knocking on the door a little bit louder when it comes to stumping for his promotion. I don't think the reason that you don't bring him up now is anything to do with his readiness. I think you could say pretty definitively that he is ready. And it's not like they're curbing his service time from the perspective of wanting an extra year of team control or anything like that. That already has passed for 2023. He would have had to have been up by like early May, I want to say for that to have been a factor. So it's not service time related in the way that you normally think about service time that he doesn't come up just yet, but it is service time related. It's just in a relatively brand new way. Within the last couple of years, there have been a change. I think this was implemented for the new collective bargaining agreement. Remember they had the lockout after 2021 before 2022 and had to come up with that new agreement. Within that, 
was something that was brand new when it comes to addressing, honestly, the service time manipulation that had been kind of rampant throughout Major League Baseball and trying to curb that through rewarding teams who bring up their young stud prospects on day one of a season for opening day and keep them on the roster for whatever the percentage is throughout the year so that when that guy wins rookie of the year, rookie-eligible player who is up from day one of a given season, that team can actually gain a compensation draft pick, a compensatory pick that comes in the compensatory round right after the first round of the MLB draft. So this past July in Seattle, where the draft was held, the Mariners got one of those picks within like the top 40 of the draft. I don't know the exact number offhand, but it was somewhere in the 30s, I believe, that the Mariners got a brand new draft pick, no strings attached. All that they had to do was bring up Julio Rodriguez from day one last year, keep him on the roster through, I don't know what it is, if it's 85% or 90% of the season. I'm kind of wondering if Jordan Walker actually qualifies for that anymore because of the time that he spent with Memphis this season. Not that I think he's going to win Rookie of the Year, but there's actually a, a part of this clause as well where second and third place finishers for Rookie of the Year can earn their teams a pick in the international draft. Now, that's a part that I think was just proposed. They have not actually finalized, I don't believe, the notion of an international draft just yet, but I think at some point, if they do, that would then kick into effect as well. But with Mason Wynn, as long as he doesn't spend 45 or more days on the Cardinals roster this year, the active MLB roster, and doesn't exceed 130 at-bats, which I don't know why it's at-bats instead of plate appearances, which is kind of weird, but that is what it is, 130 at-bats, Mason Wynn would then still be rookie of the year eligible, still rookie eligible in general. And as long as the Cardinals would have him on the opening day roster next year and he spends enough time with the team, and I, I don't know that number, it's kind of hard to find. And some of the articles on it, on the, the prospect promotion incentive is what it's called, are wrong about some of the, the data on that. So you got to be careful about that. But I think the deal with it is as long as they accrue a year of service time, that ends up representing enough to qualify for this prospect promotion incentive on the team's behalf. So it kind of is the inverse of the old way where teams would wait a couple of weeks to make sure guys did not accrue a full year of service time and then they would get to keep him for an extra year under arbitration. Like that was kind of the way that things used to be with the service time manipulation. They've basically taken that out of the game by saying, look, if you think a guy is ready at the beginning of the season and he's currently rookie eligible going into the year, I also think he has to be a top 100 prospect according to two of the three major lists that are put out. I think MLB Pipeline is one, Baseball America is another, and ESPN might have one as well that qualifies. That's the other characteristic that is necessary to be considered for this prospect promotion incentive. But Mason Wynn, as long as it's fewer than 45 days and 130 at-bats, and he's on the roster to begin next year and accrues the full year of service time, then he would end up counting for that opportunity if he were to win Rookie of the Year. Like the Cardinals would get a, a first-round pick, essentially, or a pick that's right after the first round in the middle of all the compensatory picks that take place from free agent signings and the like before the second round begins. So that is a very profitable, valuable draft pick if you can come by it. I think it's part of the reason that the Cardinals initially had Jordan Walker on the roster to begin this season. Ultimately, I, he's not going to accrue a full year of service time, I don't guess, because of the amount of time that he spent in the minors. But nevertheless, he's probably not winning Rookie of the Year anyway, so the Cardinals you know, wouldn't have gotten the draft pick because he didn't win the award. But nevertheless, for Mason Wynn, I think he is the caliber of a prospect that is worth it to kind of make sure you are staying eligible for that if you're the Cardinals. In a lost season, would it be nice to just see two months of Mason Wynn and have him ready, raring to go for 2024 as a result of getting this major league experience down the stretch run? Yes, I have been stumping for exactly that scenario, actually, saying that if the Cardinals want to win in 2024 and have that be a contending season, then what we don't need to hear is how, well, they were such a young team. Like, imagine next July, they're talking about why they're 10 games below 500. Well, we were just such a young team and we didn't really gel and we didn't have... The ways to combat that is to make sure that you minimize the opportunity for such an excuse. Yes, Mason Wynn's going to be a young player next year, but he's going to have some major league experience because you played him down the stretch at the big leagues. However, when it's just really waiting two and a half more weeks and that allows Mason Wynn to keep his rookie eligibility for next year intact, it's not really service time manipulation because he wasn't going to get this year of service anyway, and so it's not going to affect how soon he gets to go to free agency. So for the Cardinals, it just makes perfect sense. 
to wait a couple more weeks. Whatever the date is, I think August 20th might be the date to make sure he stays below the 20, uh, the 45 days that are required. And the 130 at bats, I think he stays below because he probably bats ninth or bats lower in the batting order when he does play in August and September. That is something that I think I'm totally okay with when it comes to the Cardinals, even in a lost season. That's why I'd bring up a guy like Nick Dunn now, as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, have him play for a few weeks, see what it looks like, and then if it's nothing, then you can send him back down to AAA and call it good. You've seen what you needed to see. It kind of makes sense timing-wise with what I expect to be for Mason Wynn. But I expect him to be up before the end of August. If you're asking for my prediction, it is that Mason Wynn will be in St. Louis before the calendar turns to September. But I actually am aligned with the Cardinals if their stance is don't bring him up yet because you've got a shot at this rookie of the year promotion incentive, I think is reasonable. Because even if it's not till August 20th or 21st or whatever it is that they bring up Mason Wynn or 17th or whatever that number happens to be, I still say getting a month plus of major league experience and probably playing on a basically everyday basis is at least enough to get your feet wet and to get your feet under you to know like, all right, here's life in the big leagues. I'm acclimated to it. Now I can go into a full off season where I know what I'm chasing after and trying to be that guy for a contending team next year. I think that's enough for Mason Wynn to be able to get that taste in his mouth and to know what it's like. And that's really what it's about. Would two more weeks help him even more? Yeah, probably. But I think there is a trade-off when it comes to these types of decisions And I'm okay with where the Cardinals are on this one. They haven't said specifically uh, that I have heard that the reason Mason Wynn is is not up yet is because of this exact situation. But I think if we're all paying attention, we can probably guess that that is a bit of a hindrance to their plans. And I'm fine with it. I really am. But let me know what you think. Are you thinking Mason Wynn should already be here in St. Louis based on having really not a whole lot left to prove in Memphis with the way he's performed offensively, defensively, and everywhere in between? at AAA this season. Let me know what you think. Comment below on YouTube. Make sure to hit the subscribe button if you enjoy podcasts like this one. We talk Cardinals baseball every single night, virtually throughout the season and into the offseason. We'll be doing plenty of Cardinals podcasts as well. B-Shape Daily is the name of this particular show that we do, and you can find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts in addition to YouTube right here. I'm going to put the Patreon link as well in the description if you guys want to support me that way. Appreciate you all for listening as always. That is going to do it, though, for this edition of the show. We will talk to you next time on Be Shafe Daily. Peace.